Good morning. Well, I found something out last week when I was at youth retreat, and I listened to uh, Pastor Chris preach. He did a great job, didn't he? But I heard that some of you like Pastor Chris to preach because he tells a joke to start with. You need to know, I don't do that. At least not those kind of jokes. You know, we've been looking at holiness and what does this mean and the practice of it. We talked about the holiness of God and we see that as we look at the holiness of Christ, how he lived out in this earth. And last week we talked about dying to sin. This week, it's absolutely critical that we understand and get this particular truth when it comes to holiness. It's about embracing forgiveness. If we don't do this right, we'll never get holiness right. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 5 through 12. You can follow along with me with Bibles that you brought on your particular device or on the screen. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is God's word. Now, one of the questions we have to deal with, and we'll be dealing with this in weeks to come as well, when it talks about holiness, is the question of sin. And of course, sin means to miss the mark, and sin is supposed to produce guilt in us. And when you start dealing with the whole issue of sin and guilt, we have to understand that the church should lead with hope in this matter. But the church cannot lead from an empty soul. The church is not majority rule. All creation is led by the rule of God. And this high call for being salt and light demands Christ-like forgiveness. So here's the first question I want to deal with this morning. What do we deal with our guilt and shame? I mean, that's what sin produces. I know every single person here at some point in their life has felt guilt and shame about something. Now, shame has to do with who we are, the core of our being. Guilt has to do with what we've done. It's our actions. One says, you're worthless. The other says, you did something against the rule of God or against the rule of man or against what you thought was a rule. 
But both guilt and shame touches us at our deepest levels. Now, for the sake of the message this morning, I'm just going to deal with guilt, okay? Not shame. There's some same principles that apply, but they are different. But one must deal with their guilt before they can deal with their shame. So why do we feel guilt? Because we're guilty. And we're guilty of what? We're guilty of breaking someone's law. Guilt occurs when you violate a law. And laws are inescapable in our world. And you can think they're fair, they're unfair. You think they openly apply to some and not to others. They're constantly changing. I mean, I still remember a day when the national speed limit was 55 miles per hour. Now it's all over the place. But here's what we have to understand. The Bible says that God is the ultimate lawgiver, okay? That's his realm. That's his control. Now, we try to usurp him. We try to make our own laws, and we try to make people feel guilty about violating our laws. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. That's what the the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. But we know this. His laws are fair. They're good, and they're there for our benefits. They're not there to punish us. They're not there because he wants to press us down. They're not there because he wants us to move into a period of shame. Part of the problem then is this. It's our emotions. It's our feelings. Because that's a subjective response. Let me explain it this way. There's times we do not feel guilt when we are guilty. (laughs) Speeding. You can be speeding down the road and you don't feel anything until you get caught by a police officer. And maybe guilt isn't your response. I don't know. A lack of guilt feelings does not always indicate a lack of guilt. In Jeremiah 3, verse 3, and Jeremiah used some pretty harsh language in the Hebrew, okay? Here's what he says. You refuse to be ashamed. He's referring to their behaviors that violate God's law, and they did it over and over and over and over again. And it's kind of like, you know, who cares? Now, the New Testament calls that a seared conscience. That if we do a particular sin over and over and over again, we will stop feeling guilty. We'll stop feeling anything about that. It's kind of like, what's the big deal? There's other worse sins. So we have to make a distinction between guilt and guilt feelings. Now, the Bible tells us it's possible to reject and deny our sin and lose the capacity for guilt. It doesn't mean that if it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact us. Sin, whether we feel guilty, sin, whether we acknowledge it, sin, whether we confess it, it will impact us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. What happens is we fall into Genesis 3 that says, well, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And then we blame somebody else for our condition. We blame somebody else for our situation. We start saying things like, well, you know what? If that wasn't in my life, then I would be. And they refuse, and we refuse to deal with our own hearts. So let's look at our text. Starts off by saying God is light. There's no darkness in him. That's a biblical truth. And he is God, and we are not. Amen? Amen. Repeat after me. We say this often here. I am not God. God. 
turn to the person next to you and say, neither are you. That's just in case they didn't say it, okay? Are you aware? Are you aware that every time we take control of our lives away from God, we are really saying, I'm God. I got this. I know how this should work. I was listening to an interview of a woman who left her children and her husband after several decades of marriage. And here's what she said. And I quote, I decided to follow my truth and I chose love. Now in our world, you know, the audience did what? Oh, isn't she wonderful? That's just so nice sounding. She chose love. Well, think about the damage she did to her husband and to her kids. Now, in our world, you're always going to find people to affirm your truth. But you have to look at what is God's truth. See, it's possible for us to display ourselves as walking the light. All outward accolades, all outward appearances. We do all the right things outwardly, but really we're walking in darkness. Because there's situations and there's secrets and there's lies and everything else we tell ourselves and tell other people. And we live a lie. But if we walk in the light, this text says, we can have fellowship with him and others. And he cleanses us from all our sins. Don't you just love the word all there? It doesn't say some. It doesn't say there's list and there's category. And, and these are ones that, well, you really got to work at it for a few years before you can get rid of those. Then he repeats himself. He says it more direct this time. If we claim we have no sin, we're self-deceiving and the truth is not in us. And then he says the other again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, there's the word again, all unrighteousness. And then he repeats himself the negative equation. He does this three times. If we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar and his word is not in us. Now, when something in a short period of time is repeated three times, we have to ask ourselves why. What is he trying to tell us? Now, I don't know about you, but I know very few people who've made that claim that they've never sinned. I know a few that have said that while they used to sin, they can't anymore, and they have some nuanced theological reason for it. But I think this whole thing cuts to an issue we often self-deceive. So I'm going to ask a question, give an illustration, then tell a story to talk about what I'm saying. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you confessed a specific sin and asked God for forgiveness? I mean, think about it. Now, hopefully you could say, bang, bang, bang. But you start thinking, well, wait a minute. It was three weeks ago, four weeks ago. I want you to read that passage again because you've fallen into a state where you say, I really, not that I can't sin, but I haven't sinned. See, the problem is we categorize sin, don't we? Here's the really big ones. And if we do this, yeah, we're going to confess right away. And we minimize what we consider the lesser sins. And if you can't remember 
the last time you confessed a specific sin, well, let me suggest you might be in this category where John says three times, if you say you have no sin, then you're self-deceiving, you're lying to yourself. You're not telling yourself the truth. Here's the illustration. I overheard in church lobby one day. Yes, I listen. <laughs> There's a person confessing to another person a very specific sin that happened this week, and they were feeling guilty. They were in tears, and the person was trying to be comforting to them. They were talking to, and, and they finally said, listen, you know, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. And the person said, I know that. And he goes, you know, I too am a sinner. I mean, I sin all the time. And to that, the person looked up and looked at him and said, so what sin did you confess? Ooh. I won't tell you what I heard after that. (laughs) But I thought, how many times do we do that? We make this general category. Yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And yes, I sin all the time. And yet there really isn't a specific times we said, Lord, forgive me for this. I think John's pointing out that we sin more than we realize and are willing to admit. I think we excuse it. I think we deny it. I think we forget what Jeremiah says. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? Well, God can know it. That's what his truth here is for. That's what his Holy Spirit's for. So here's the story. A woman came to seek advice from her minister and she says, Pastor, I've confessed my sin, but I don't feel forgiven. I still feel guilty. So he had her read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. She's a pastor. She goes, I have confessed over 100 times and I still feel guilty. So he says, so why don't you believe you're forgiven? Because you don't feel forgiven? Do you trust God's truth or your emotions? And the woman was visibly frustrated, and she goes, you're supposed to be my pastor. I expected something more from you, and I already told you I confessed over 100 times. I don't feel forgiven. You're supposed to help me. So the pastor, after a period of silence, says, well, I want you to ask God to forgive your sin again. And she looked at me and says, you don't understand. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm asking you to confess a different sin. I want you to confess your sin of arrogance. Now, she really got upset, didn't go with, well with her. And she says, I've been one of the most humble people in the world, and here I am confessing my sin to you. So he said to her, what does God say? If I confess, he'll forgive me and cleanse me. But he says, that wasn't good enough for you. So you went back a second time and a third time, You went back a hundred times again and again. And what you're saying to God is, I really don't trust you to forgive me. To refuse the forgiveness of God is an act of arrogance. Because you are unwilling to believe God has forgiven you, then you're unwilling to forgive yourself. Now see, we don't like to hear that, do we? We want someone to fix us. We want someone to take. We want that magic bullet to take it all away, that prayer, whatever it is. But trust comes before feeling. We've got to trust what God's word says and what he will do. 
before our emotions can even catch up with that. So according to this passage, there's a few principles I want to get into. Here's the first. God is a source of forgiveness. In this passage, realize he is quick to forgive, unlike us. That's why he's God and not us. You know, we are so passive aggressive with our forgiveness. And there's two reasons. One is we don't have an active view of sin. And two is we do not fully embrace the forgiveness of God. We just kind of hang on to things that we don't have to hang on to in our lives. And because we do it to ourselves, guess what? We do it to other people. Secondly, God has the power of forgiveness. He frees us from sin. Chris talked about that last week. It frees us from the hold it has on us. It frees us from the ultimate penalty of sin. It frees us from our guilt. And you know, there's stories all through Scripture about true forgiveness. There's Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, that, that Christ, through his forgiveness, gave her purity and a femininity back to her. I mean, Paul says, listen, in Christ, you're a new creation. You know, very often we don't take forgiveness far enough. What we believe is it cleans us. We don't believe it makes us new. There's a story of a couple. Early on in his teen life, he had a previous life before Christ, and he wasn't exactly pure in his relationships, and it was encouraged by his parents. He thought about dating a Christian girl, so he went to his to her parents and told them about his past and said, listen, I'm committed to date your daughter in a way of purity. And so they began dating and they fell in love. And so he went back to ask for her hand in marriage. And here's what he met with. Her mom pulls out two pieces of gun. One is chewed and one wasn't. And he goes, she goes, this is our daughter the gum that was never chewed, and this is you. Now she goes, this gum has been cleansed, it's been purified, it's been boiled, it's perfectly clean. But we don't want our daughter to marry someone who's been previously chewed. Washed and clean, but not wholly forgiven. That's how we treat each other, isn't it? Third principle is we must embrace forgiveness. We got to take it into our bellies. We got to take it into our souls. We got to believe it with every ounce of truth that God has for us. You know, Francis Schaeffer said it's the Christian responsibility to give honest answers to honest questions as far as we are able. And you know, we have a lot of dishonest questions, don't we? Someone comes to you and say, do you still beat your wife? <laughs> Think about that. That's not an honest question, is it? It's a question of accusation. They've already drawn a conclusion. But let's get some honesty in, about guilt and sin and forgiveness. You have Satan and you have the Holy Spirit. This is what God's word says. Satan does what? He accuses us. He's called the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. Holy Spirit does what? He convicts us. Satan loves to point out everything we've done wrong, even the things we don't do wrong. This is your fault. That's called false guilt. 
And when you feel guilty over something that does not violate God's law, but someone else's, well, you shouldn't feel guilty about that, but you do, don't you? It's kind of comical now, and I think about this. You know, I was raised that using regular cards, you know, regular cards are with the king and the queen and the ace. Uh, you shouldn't use regular cards because the jack was the devil card, and those kind of cards were associated with gambling, okay? Then you find out later you can gamble with anything. You can gamble about two ants going across the road. But in my day, rook was okay, okay? But not regular cards. So if I would play with some friends a game of hearts or pinochle, I would feel guilty. And that's really was false guilt because I didn't violate God's law. I still remember when I was interning as a youth pastor while attending Lancaster Bible College, the church for New Year's Eve had a massive pinochle party. And I'm like, whoa, you know, wrestle my mind. Are these people really that unspiritual? And, uh, you know, I was invited to go. And I wrestled with going because of my upbringing. I have to confess, I went and I had a good time. (laughs) You know, legalism, we drum it into ourselves so often. And we have to learn to disassociate legalism and God's word. And, And all I'm saying here is that Satan will try to make you feel guilty about anything and everything. He'll just accuse you, accuse you, accuse you. And his goal is to destroy you. I mean, Jesus violated the laws of religious leaders constantly. He would heal on the Sabbath. He would meet and touch unclean people. He'd visit the wrong people in their homes. So one of the things you have to do, honestly, ask this question. Did I break God's law? If a close friend that you trust, ask them the same question. Here's the situation. Here's what I did. Did I break God's law? Get an outside opinion that you know is trustworthy. Don't go to someone you know is going to agree with you. Go to someone that is trustworthy. You've got to be careful here because our attitudes can make all the difference. You know, we can for selfish reasons say things like this, well, nobody can tell me what I can and can't do. I mean, that's sinful. Disregard someone's conviction and simply call it stupid. That's sinful. Why does Satan like to do this? Real easy, it paralyzes us. It robs us of our freedom, our joy and peace. He doesn't want us to delight in the grace of God. And we don't shine very well then, and we're not attracting people to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit convicts us. How do we know the difference? Conviction always brings us to repentance. Conviction is a path for reconciling us to God and other people. Conviction brings into us forgiveness, healing, and cleansing. Conviction has purpose. It's redemption. The remedy for our sin is the gospel. And the gospel exposes our hearts so that we can see our sins And the gospel is a dagger right into our self-righteous hearts. You know, last week, Pastor Chris talked about being dead to sin. That really means two things. One is that God is for me and not against me, okay? And two, God God no longer counts my sin against me. There's an old expression that says, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. 
Now, let me read a few passages about what God does with our sin. Okay? This is biblical truth. Psalm 103, verse 12, be on the screen. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, that's a fancy word for sin, from us. Now, think about that because if you keep going east, what do you run into? No, you don't run into the west. You just keep going east because we're a globe. So that's how far he separates it. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That should get a woe. <laughs> Romans chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Blessed are those who lawless deeds. I got the wrong verse, don't I? I got the one verse in here. Blessed is the man from whom the Lord will not count his sin. Think about that. Is this blessing then for only the circumcised, but also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham's righteousness. You know, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, is a slave trader. If you didn't know that. And for medical reasons, he had to leave the sea. He became a customs officer. Later on, he became a Christian, started studying theology, and eventually became a minister. At the end of his life, here's what he said. And I quote, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. So let me give a few principles wrapping this up. Here's the first. Our reality is that we're universally guilty. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you think you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what your previous life has been. We are all universally guilty. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's biblical truth. Since we are all universally guilty, we are all in need of forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Secondly, forgiveness demands the proper reason. You know, the first reason that we ask for forgiveness isn't us. I don't know if you know that. The first is to honor God. I mean, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to serve as our sacrifice. And if we want to honor him, we accept his son and the gift that he gave to us. That's why it says that we forgive as we have been forgiven. And to bring about change for the common good. That's why we're forgiven. It's not about us. It's not about what we feel. And it's not about what we think about ourselves. You realize that this whole forgiveness thing just literally frees society. Think about everything you hear in the news today and think about the unforgiveness, the way people talk. It's why we're in wars. It's why we have violence. It's why we have what we have today. See, in our therapeutic culture, forgiveness is usually about self-interest. We do it for our own mental health and our own freedom. And while it's true that forgiveness can bring all those things, they are byproducts, not the reason. So we have to do it for the right reasons. 
Thirdly, forgiveness is both an event and a process. It's an event at our confession. It's granted. It's a process. It takes a while until it's felt. I say there's three practical commitments when you forgive, whether it's yourself or other people. The first is you don't continually bring up the sin to the wrongdoer in order to browbeat and punish them. I mean, think about how when you look in the mirror in the morning and you sit there and you browbeat yourself about something you did. You knew you shouldn't have done. You know you keep doing it. It's like you can't stop doing it. When you forgive yourself, when Christ forgives you and you forgive yourself, you stop doing that. And you stop doing it with other people. Secondly, you don't constantly bring up the sin to hurt the wrongdoer's reputation or relationship to others. I mean, how many times... I mean, this sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, how many times do we go over and over and over, we move it from the mirror, we move it out to the public to let people know that we really aren't as good as they think we are? How many times do we browbeat our other... And how many times do we browbeat other people just reminding them and reminding them and reminding them? I mean, how many times did somebody run into you 30 years ago and they look at you and say, well, I remember the way you were when you are a teenager. And you're doing what now? I get that one a lot. (laughs) Third is, we don't constantly bring up the sin to yourself so that it keeps your anger hot. So we don't replay the video over and over and over so we cherish the feelings of nobility and virtue that comes from being treated unjustly. In other words, stop playing the victim. Stop playing the victim. Forgive is to reject any vengeance or payback. It is not to act as if it never happened, okay? There can be abusive behavior by a spouse. You need to put up appropriate boundaries. You don't need to put yourself in harm's way. But you reject any vengeance. You reject playing God. And this is why I say that if we're going to understand holiness, we're going to embrace forgiveness. Because if we don't embrace forgiveness, then we can't look at the person in the mirror and see that person as God sees us. And that is so tragic. And if we can't see that, then we can't see other people the same way. And then we'll live in a world where we just go back and forth with violence and words and everything else, and we just end up dividing ourselves rather than coming together in unity and seeking to give God glory because only God can do in us what we can't do for ourselves. Amen? And I got to tell you, the world is looking for The world is looking for hope, not man-made hope, not manufactured hope, not hope as the world gives. They're looking for something that is so supernatural, so uniquely apart from anything that they could ever believe in. And they want to sit back and say, you people shouldn't get along. But you do. And why do you do what you do? And why do you give the way you give? And but it's through the Holy Spirit that he empowers us to do that. Amen.
The next principle is that forgiveness is first vertical, then horizontal in our relationships. And we've been saying this all along, that if we don't have it right before God, we're not going to have it right before one another. It's that simple. Don't know what else to say. God commands it. And our response to his grace is fully embracing it for ourselves and for other people. We forgive to truly defeat evil in our world so that it does not control us for years to come. So if you want to grow in holiness, you must embrace forgiveness. You've got to drink deeply of Christ's forgiveness for you. You've got to surrender to his forgiveness and you've got to let it go. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because here's how we're going to close this morning. The song we're going to sing is Come to the Altar. It's familiar for us here. And I realize whenever I preach of forgiveness, there's situations and circumstances that kind of nudge in your mind and heart. Some are by the Holy Spirit. Some are by Satan. And so we're going to just, as we sing this song, give you an opportunity to come to the altar to pray. To confess before God. Tell him exactly where you're at. Tell him exactly what's going on. As you come, some people probably come and pray with you. Um, But you need to believe that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from what? All sin. So let's stand as we sing. Open invitation to come to the altar to pray.